0: That E-Music, and obviously the episode title for this interview gives it away, but I had the chance. I, Doug Dietzold, who was a diehard wrestling fan when I was growing up in the 90s and early 2000s, got to interview Sid Vicious, Sid Psycho Sid, Sid Udy. Man, he has some amazing wrestling stories, and we didn't get too in-depth on How he came up, he gave me a little bit here and there. Is anyone spoiled? But he just started a podcast called The Vicious Circle Podcast, and he's basically going in order about his career. And man, that guy has some amazing stories that you're going to want to check out. Check out the episode notes; it's going to have the link to his podcast so you can check it out. So uh, before he power bombs me, let's start the interview. Yeah.
1: So uh, this is awesome to be able to talk to
2: you. Yeah, this is good, man. I'm trying to get used to this podcast, anybody I've talked to, the way you get used to it, just keep doing them, you know?
1: I've, I've listened to the first two episodes right. of your podcast, so I don't think you have anything to work on. You have always had, in your career, you had always had great mic skills, and those things aren't scripted, right? Right. You know what you're doing, and then before we even get started talking about you, let's talk about so your podcast is called The, the Vicious Circle. Right. Why did you want to start it? Well,
2: honestly, it just, you know, um We a buddy of mine named Barry Norman. We've been working on this book of mine, and we decided to do it ourselves instead of going through a publishing company. We've had just so much, you know, not we didn't hear the right things from the publishing companies we talked to, and a couple other writers we talked to. It's better to do it on your own. Just you got to sort of promote it yourself. So really, that's what we got on there first, you know, for you know to promote the book, and then then after getting into it, I heard a few people's podcasts, and I thought. God would really probably be good for the people listening to these things to say, hey, you know, I want to hear the truth about some of these things.
0: Where yeah. of these stories
2: these people are saying, it's just crazy. Now, if I spent my whole life trying to correct everybody's wrong stories, I'd never get anywhere. But it' again, <laughs> it's mostly just, and then after getting into it, now I can see how much fun it is, and then I do feel like the people who got back with us, or feedback from this one is that they feel like the people are being someone's being honest with them. So that's what we want to do is where, you know, when we do get to subjects and stuff like that, we don't want we're not have no editing in it. Uh, that way we can't go back and say that, you know, we're sort of going in circles about what we're saying. You know. Yeah. So it's just uh again it's just it's been a lot of fun, so I I'm not sure where to all go to. Yeah, well no,
1: that's good that you're getting it out there and I like the way you're doing it too. Well well like
2: piece by piece. Right, do it a little piece at a time and then, you know, add some different um I'm gonna add some different guests in there, like what we're calling uh call ins and then um where we talk about music about me and Barry Norman talked about Woodstock and what music oh, meant awesome. to us and stuff like that. So You know, trying to find a crossover audience as well.
1: So your, like, love for music was one thing that jumped off the page of me. Like, listen, I'm like, oh, that's so cool. And just the the way you the way like your childhood growing up it right. was like really heartfelt and you you know just to see where you where you went to with your career. Right. Well that's
2: why we think, Doug, it's gonna be make for a really good book. Uh, we really do.
1: So what was one story that you heard from like another one of the podcasts or any stories that were out there that you're like, okay, I need to set the stories true.
2: Well one was this was Bruce Prichard's where he's talking about the incident with being harmed. And um, I think he has, uh, I don't think it is, uh, he's got the wrong city in the wrong country. You know, so it's just, you know. And then, too, listening to these people and, you know, their opinions on it, like when you hear Bill Dunn's story, he goes, well, I wasn't there that night. I I didn't see it, but then he tells a story about it. So it's just automatically people are making up a story that wasn't even there. And of all the stories that were told, Two Cold Scorpios was about the best. And it was pretty accurate. He said what he didn't see, he said what he saw was pretty accurate. So, again, yeah. it's just um yeah. you find out that the, most of the stories aren't close out there. And not just that story, because uh, <clears throat> I don't like talking about that story too much, because I don't like dragging our family through all that stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, or my own family. And That's a stupid story. It was two stupid people doing stupid things. And But, again, that and then um just everything about it. Well, how I, how my career was and where I was at different points in my career. People were so stupid, you know? Yeah.
1: I mean, they really <laughs> you know are. I mean, mean?
2: It's just amazing how dumb people are.
1: Now, is there, from, from your days in wrestling, we're going to kind of go all, all over the place, but, uh, so in your days in wrestling, are there any people you still talk to from your career? I,
2: I do. Uh, I talk to you know, um, Bruno Lauer, who's Harvey Wilferman or downtown Bruno.
3: Oh, awesome.
2: Uh, <clears throat> talked to him quite a bit. Then I talked, you know, the guy I traveled with that I really look back and really liked the most was, uh, Carl Willette, that was one half of the Quebecers and did that pirate character. Oh, okay. Uh, he was a like, lot, and then I still call and talk to him from time to time. He'll call me once in a while, but that's really about it. And then I talked, and I take that back, I talked to Doug Gilbert, you know, his brother's Eddie Gilbert, who had a lot to do with breaking me
1: in. Yeah.
2: Uh, so I talked to Doug just the other day. We're going on an autograph signing in November Philadelphia and New York together. So that would be fun seeing him.
1: Oh no way! Really? Maybe I'll check yeah. that out. I'm in Jersey, so I'm not that far.
2: Yeah, we're gonna do one in. Uh, I guess actually got two in November in New York.
1: Oh, that should be pretty cool. So, yeah. so growing up, I know you enjoy playing sports from, the, from uh, your first episode. Because I'm gonna send so many people there and listen to it, so they don't have to hear the same thing twice. But there was a lot of like sports around, there's a lot of ball fields, uh, the guys that he was driving in, or some sports that you enjoyed playing growing up. Really, I liked all sports,
2: man. Um,
1: and this is what I tell
2: people, too, you know, you you struggle, you know, nothing's fun until you're winning at it. And when you start yeah. winning, then it becomes fun. Now, um, I think one of the first sports I picked up on was baseball. It took me a couple of years, but I got where I was, you know, a full-time starter, and could hit the ball, et cetera, et cetera. And then football came after that. And then basketball was the last thing to come around for me. And, um, but when it came around, it was a lot of fun too. So there's probably nothing I didn't enjoy. And I also boxed and we, uh, took karate most of my life. So to me, all, I liked all five or six sports that I participated in.
1: So when did you become six eight, right? Are you six eight or six nine?
2: Yeah, I'm about six eight.
1: So when did that happen? How old were you that you hit that?
2: Man, honestly, Doug, I can't remember when I was. <laughs> you no, know, probably. I really don't remember, honestly.
1: No, you're just saying are like a six, to eight. Like if you, if you, you still watch it? You still enjoy watching baseball, right?
2: Yeah, I'm watching it right now.
1: Hell oh, that. So I'm a big Yankee fan for where I grew up, and you rarely see players as big as Aaron Judge, and right. that's that's you. So I'm, I was just wondering, seeing a six, eight kid in high school hitting. Penn would be like something phenomenal to sit. Right. So the one story that I that I was listening to, I thought was pretty fascinating, was when it came to, like, football. So you said you were playing football in high school, and then you were going to try out for the USFL? Uh, no, what happened in the USFL,
2: Doug, was Memphis Showboats was one of the teams in the USFL, and they had an open trial. Now, I hadn't played football since high school, and so I went out there. This is when I just probably about you know, second, third, maybe fourth year working out. Really started putting on some size and stuff like that, some strength. And I uh, walked out. I think there was like, shit, two or 3,000 people tried out for that team. And I uh-huh. made it to the last cut. Um, just on a 40 speed, a, a broad jump, a vertical. And um, really, that was it. You know, and, and then the, the, the bench press. And I excelled at all those things. And uh, I had a 4.840. I think I did three. You know, 225 for 33 reps. I had the again the highest vertical of all offensive defensive linemen. Had the longest broad jump. And buddy of mine who went on the trial with me, and taught me everything I knew about working out. I actually beat him out. And he has played. <laughs> you know, he had played at Kentucky and you know boxed professionally. And and uh, so just don't people realize just on those fundamental drills, if you if you're way ahead of everybody else, they'll keep you just for that fact alone. Oh, yeah.
1: There's a the few NFL players that get drafted just based on that. The Giants, he, they drafted a guy, Jason Pierre Ball, and he only played one year of college Well, two years of college football. Like, he never played, but he had all those things that they looked for that they felt like they could work with. Right. As a matter of
2: fact, I got picked up at the end of the USFL, before the league went under, and I got pulled down to Houston, a team called Houston Gamblers, And, yeah. uh... I was just working out of the gym in Memphis and the scout for them came through and asked me if I'd go out and run a 40. I ran a 40 in the, in the rain out there on the track in tennis shoes. And then they brought me into their trial and then the coach brought me in and talked to me. He said, man, he goes, if it wasn't, we, we know that this league is going under. They said, if, the, if we didn't think it was going under, we would keep you just to keep you on the practice team. And then oh, wow. so you, you would probably become a starter. Cause again, I had everything it took. You know, I was 325, you know, again the forty forty, highest vertical longest spot jump and then I had good explosion you know
1: what position
2: did were you trying out for it was like well I was hoping for a defense but uh with the Memphis Showboats, they brought me in and pretty much just give gave me all me fit alignment assignments
1: yeah that think that that league did fold, but because uh, that would have been a cool opportunity but I think things obviously worked out for you yeah, when you think about it. So was well, it right around the time that you ran ma- like Macho Man? Right, this him? was a, this was the
2: exact same time. Um, oh no way! Yeah, it was just a coincidence. And uh, what it was is um, this is weird timing. Uh There was this promoter for a country music singer named Eddie Bond here in Memphis, and he saw me at a Friday's one night and asked me to, if I wanted to wrestle, and took me down to the Coliseum, and introduced me to a guy named old man named Guy Coffee. And um, then Randy Savage and them saw me there that night when they saw me in the gym the next day they said, man, if you're thinking about wrestling, get away from that goofy guy that really aren't uh, promoters or managers for wrestlers. I mean, there really is not that kind of money there. And so yeah. uh, they introduced me to Tojo Yamamoto,
1: and um, that's how I got into wrestling. Yeah, that was a really cool story when you talked about, like, your wife, how – I don't know if you're you're already married. It's just you traveling to do the training.
2: Right. Well, that was, again, you know, I think I tell people that is it for me to be successful or not successful as as I think I was or was not, um, to have that opportunity, I had a great support system where all I had to worry about, it wasn't worry about just doing the little things, but I didn't have to worry about anything but doing the, the things I had to do to be the best in the wrestling business. And my wife and family made that possible for
1: me. Yeah, it's important to have a sports system. Especially when you're doing something that's so new to you. And I know you, you watch wrestling a few times on TV.
0: Now, right.
1: do you Now, do you remember your first match? I remember, um, let's see. I, I remember
2: my first match. Like for instance, you know, like in Malden, Missouri, where we'd go down there and just do stupid stuff. I, my first real match that I considered was... Uh, I got pulled in as a Lord Humongous character with Jerry Lawler, and um, from my understanding, somebody just didn't show up and, yeah. and put me into the spot. And I got to be main event with uh, Jerry Lawler, Austin Idol, and Nick Bockwinkel. Oh my god! So that was a pretty wh- good, cool way to start off. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: With that character, you were in a mask, right? Yeah. How was that, like, doing all your training? Obviously, you're not wearing a mask and you're doing all your training and getting ready to step into the ring. Did that, like, make it even harder to do it for the first time? You know, the thing was,
2: is I was so nervous and so scared. I think <laughs> it wouldn't have mattered if I had five masks on. You know, I'm like, kid, I remember going out to the ring that night and Austin I was saying, hey, flex. And I, I couldn't get my muscles to flex. <laughs> I'm not kidding, man. It was that nerve wracking.
1: I bet. Do you remember how many people like were in the crowd? I'm sure it was a bunch. It's like Jerry Lawless Yeah, it was. Yeah, so
2: now I'll tell you what, I'll tell you my first match. This is a, this is a better way of, another best match. My first okay. match was actually I stood in one night for someone. They called me in my house this was, I was going through the freshman school and they had not smartened me up yet. They hadn't told me the business was a work and things like that. So they called said, um told you and said, you want to come to the costume tonight? And I was eating supper. I went, Yeah. So I got over there, and they pulled me, I was standing out by the back door, and they said, Okay, we're gonna have you sitting in the corner with the fabulous ones tonight. And Jonathan Boyd's gonna be in the, sitting in the corner with the sheep herders. And your job tonight is if he gets out of his chair, is you put him back in it. <laughs> now, I don't know if you remember Jonathan Boyd was and the sheep herders were scary looking people. Yeah. And I was like, come on, now tell me the rest of the stuff. Like, this is fake, and don't worry about it. Well, they never said anything to me. And I stood out there for like, it seemed like 10 hours. And they'd come back out, and they go, you know your part? I'd go, yeah, okay. You sit in the corner, and if he gets out of his chair, you go over and put him back in his chair. And I went, yeah, and, and that would be it. So I was like, oh, shit. You know, and the, I, the guys kept coming out looking at me, you know, like, Probably laughing, thinking, he don't know what he's doing and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> and so we got out there and did the match, and uh, they had never said a word to me. And when he went to stand up, I stood up, and then he'd sit back down. And I thought, wow, he's scared of me, you know. <laughs>
1: oh, man.
2: So that was really my first my, my, my first introduction to wrestling. Yeah. So when did
1: you? How how far in did you know like that there was a work and there were like some so many other things involved in it?
2: Well, this is the thing is, is um they really never did smart me up after I got out of wrestling school, and then um, when I got that chance to be Lord Humongous, they just put me in there and told me what to do. That's amazing. It, it really <laughs> was. Well, people don't realize that you don't get smarted up even for your first match. You know that's how. That's how much of a secret they used to keep the wrestling business, you know? Yeah,
1: you know, which I think is better. And i that's one thing I want to ask you. I was going to ask you later, but I think this is perfect. So so back then when you were wrestling, you had you obviously had the good guys, the bad guys. You had all these different characters and these feuds. And it was like you believed in it. But nowadays with, like, social media and, like, like fabs broker, do you think that hurts the business and maybe that's why it's not as popular as it was? No, I think it does. I, I, you no, know, I think when you
2: say, for instance, when I walked walk to my car at night somebody would say, you know, see, the wrestling business is fake. And I'd go, yeah, you're right. And then right after that, they'd go, no, I remember one time in, um, New Jersey, it was real. I said, no, it was fake. And then they'll argue with you because they want to believe it's real. Oh, yeah. Now, I don't think you go out of your way to make them, you know, tell them it's fake and, you know, like, for instance, when you hear, like, the business in a bad spot, you know, it'll come out of the WWE that there are no such thing as baby faces and heels or uh, blah, blah, blah. And the reason I'm saying that, because no one's getting over it is either one. Yeah. So, you know, so they say that, but there always has to be a good guy and a bad guy. Uh, there's got to be, you know, those simple, basic theories to the business. It still has to be there. And I'll give you an example where they everything looks really good. All the matches are perfect. They got them all scripted out. It's been a couple years ago, I was watching one night, where, you know, used to, if somebody missed a spot in the match, and people would go, you fucked up, you fucked up. Oh,
1: well, yeah.
2: I'd rather see that once in a while and not see it at all. Well, I saw them create a spot in the match where it looked like they messed up, but they didn't. And it looked so bad that people didn't pick up on it. Ugh. So they knew that it was a it was a spot that was put in there to make it look like that, but they didn't buy it. And I don't I don't I don't remember many people picking up on that. You know, but again it's just that they want for it to be good again. Now this introduction of the new wrestling company it might stir things up a little bit to where it brings interest to the they're going to go like it was before to let the guys do what they want to you know yeah we'll see it might just be with maybe that rest that that demographics of wrestling fans that's looking for that kind of wrestling they might just say no matter how bad it might look if that's what they're wanting and maybe Vince and them will be forced to go back to letting these guys have a little more say so my understanding is as silly as it sounds to me that, that was the whole thing about, um, Cody Rhodes is that he didn't want to do the Stardust character and yeah. that he wanted to do more things is that, you know, first of all, I saw him as Stardust. He looked, he was really good at that, but I also saw him as himself and he looked really good at that too. And, um, I think if someone wanted that bad to do something, I think we should give him a chance to do it. Um, and this is the reason why for the most part, Cody wasn't put in a position where I saw in the business where I saw him on TV but when he was there to say be John Cena, right? He wasn't going to be your main guy. So it's not going to hurt let him try something else. You know what I mean? Especially if he had a chance. It looks like it was working by the the fans' responses to him showing up to these shows and getting behind him, saying, "Yeah, we did support you on that." So again, it wouldn't have hurt Vince to let him done that and then. Who knows? It might have grew into something else. Um, uh, but what happens is, Doug, when the business is bad like it is, Vince doesn't want to give in to things like that. And we're there's a long history of things that's happened before that proves that Vince does react like that. So again, I think it. I think they do need it. I do think they need to have um, a little more breathing room. And I said this before, and, and answer this question is like this. You know, Doug. If you are wrestling and I'm wrestling, you know, you just start and they tell you and me to line up and of course take off running. And, but, you know, they want us to stop in the same spot. You know, in the wrestling business, if you and I lined up, I'm going to run way past you. You know what I mean? So, um, so you're asking me to stop when Doug stops. So that doesn't do me any good. Does that make sense? Oh, no, that totally. So that's what I'm saying. That's what they're doing. They're lining everyone up and go, we want you to stop right there, all of you. Well, that doesn't work, you know. That doesn't make it, that doesn't, that's not good for the business. Yeah. No, I watched, have you watched any of the AEW yet? No, well, they, there's nothing on TV yet, and I haven't, I'm not going to order the pay-per-view. I did oh, yeah, see yeah. something, it must have been commercial, or it wasn't but part of it, wherever it was. But it had Chris Jericho on there, and it's the first thing I saw on it, and it, looked, it didn't look good.
1: Yeah, the camera work in that part of it doesn't look as good, but they had one free pay-per-view that I watched and, uh, it was on like Bleacher Report. TNT owns that. And, uh, the, the quality of the matches, the people that they have there are really good wrestlers. They just haven't had the chance to do like a weekend, week out, like storylines or anything. But, uh, no, I think mean, competition's good. You know, when you were in the business, you had WCW and WWF and it seemed like, there was a reason to go out there and give it your all. Not saying you wouldn't do that, but as a as a company, it's good to have competition. Well, it's, it's, it's I think Doug it's better for the boys to
2: have competition than yeah. for the company. Meaning oh yeah, if that's it means there, yeah. if there's a competition out there, that means other things opening up. And it will just spark too, Doug. It'll spark the smaller territories or the smaller independent territories. Work. It'll. You'll see a, an influx, and this is the right time of year to start it, too, and this is the winter. So it should have a real good carry-on, you know. Now, again, what you were saying when you saw that, you said the production of it. See, that's what I'm afraid of, Doug, is that when they start yeah. putting their stuff on TV, it's going to expose them for what they are or what they are not.
1: Yeah, you're right. You know what I mean? And yeah, well, when, when like I hear people, you change
2: the You said something earlier about them, and I've heard other people, and the way people phrase it it almost sounds like they're same words and same verbiage that people use to describe TNA when they took off. Yeah. And when you hear the same thing, that is also a bad sign to me, you know? No, that's true. Now I think, I think this company has got a million things more going for it than TNA or ECW and stuff like this. I think this company has got the best chance of doing something.
1: Yeah, so well, that's good. So let's talk about your first time. Like, when you got approached to be in WCW, what was that like?
2: Man, that was like a dream come true, dude. It was just <laughs> Eddie Gilbert had called. I didn't, me and my wife, we didn't have a phone at the time. And somehow he got the phone number at my father in law's car lot. And uh, I came up that day and he said, man, I got an Eddie Gilbert's calling. I called him. He said, what about a trial for it? WCW? I said, God, yeah, man. So that was, uh, it was, Dream come true.
1: How long were you wrestling before that?
2: About a year and a half.
1: So then you do that, and right away you're put into a tag team.
2: Right, we was put together with a guy named Danny Stevie. We were called the skyscrapers.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, and you're WWE had such great tag teams that time too. Oh, the Brothers, the Road Warriors. Well,
2: shoot, they had you know like a lot of you no know, uh, Terry Gordy and Steve Williams, there's Dan oh, yeah. Hanson and. Vader who tags some, me and Vader who tagged some, me and Stan who, Hansen who tagged some. So they had, you know, Sting and Lex tag some. So they had some really yeah. good good tag matches, tag teams. Yeah,
1: they had a lot of, that era of wrestling, there was a lot of good wrestlers. No, it Up and was. Down, like every match was great.
2: No, it was. Uh, that was a good time to be in the business. I don't think it's ever been that good since.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. Even as a fan, like, it's not the same. Like, I used to love watching Monday Night Raw and then flipping back and
3: forth. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDST.
1: Between commercials and Nitro. Right. So it was like such a fun time to be, to, to be like a fan of it. So is that the first time that you met? I don't know if you met him because obviously when you got hurt and then Mark Callaway, Undertaker, he took over in the skyscrapers. Right. Is that the first time that you met him?
2: Uh no, I had met Mark. I was uh, in Memphis. He was in Memphis. I was doing the uh, Morty Mungus character. I just came back from oh, okay. Japan, and then um, that's when I got my break with WCW. And then I didn't see him till he got to WCW, and that's after I came back from my surgery. And we actually rode together some. Um, and this is that uh, for some reason, Danny was gone at that point. I don't know why.
1: So then you come back, and then you had to get a you had a stint in the Four Horsemen, right? Was that the first time that your character was kind of, like, it it seemed like that's when you, that, that's like, not when you came into your own, but you had kind of like a more of a, because,
3: because you
1: hail from wherever you damn well please. Well, this is the thing, at that point, I'd
2: come back from my surgery, I was recovering from it, and started to get back on my feet good, and then, really what's happening, Ole Anderson was the the booker. he, he put me, involved me in a lot of things, and, um, the full horseman thing was one of two things. One, sort of get me over by association, and then also get the full horseman back over a little bit because they had become stale with a new face yeah. like me. You know, uh, you know, someone who was up and coming and gave them sort of a shot in the arm as well. So, and then two, that was when I was coming into my own. Not that I wasn't before that, but I, I'd gone through that horrible lung surgery. and it, Again, just really coming back from it, and then everything started falling in place.
1: When did you, what would you say, not an exact time, but was it like when you were at WCW or when you left for WVF? Like, when did you fall in love with the business? Like, what you were doing day, day in, day out? Probably fell in love
2: with it uh, when I was having the most fun. That's when I worked for Continental. That oh, for yeah. And okay. that was for Lord Humongous, working as Lord Humongous.
3: Oh think awesome. it,
2: then, that's, uh, to me too, Doug, I've told people this, that i I didn't, had never watched wrestling, didn't know anything about wrestling, just got into it for the, for the money. And, um, so it was, to me, it was a, it was a, it was a business and that meant getting up early, working out, doing all the right things to, you know, propel myself forward in the business. Cause it was a tough business to make it in, you know, um, oh, yeah. so again, I looked at it like that and I think that's what kept me going as strong as I did because I wasn't looking at it as a fan situation.
1: No, that's true. So, yeah, so you have a different perspective on it. One thing I wrote down that goes back to kind of like with the case we were talking about before. So, say if this was like today and I watched one of your matches when you were, you like beat the crap out of, uh, uh, Mark Marrow Mark when he was like a jobber. And it was like a quick, like one of those four minute, five minute matches and you just squashed them. Like, if I went on social media watch after watching that match and you took a photo of him, like, if you and him took a photo together, it would just t- kind of, like, ruin it, and that's what happens nowadays. That's one thing right. I wanted to mention to you before. So, what made you leave for WWF? Did they scout you out, and Vince, Vince loves big wrestlers, and you were the biggest in the battle at
2: that time? What it was is I had a chance, they were do, redoing my contract, they gave me a chance to call and talk to Vince, and I called him one day, and he got on the phone and flew me in the same day, and you know, I asked me a I wanted out of the business, and I told him he offered it to me, and then uh, I took a chance and went there.
1: Was it what was it like? Like the inner workings of WCW versus like WWF was it a total difference the way it, like the operations went.
2: Oh yeah, it was totally night and day. Where you know WWF it was it was a wrestling company and WCW was a television company. So yeah, the, the pressure was there. Um, everything was magnified. Um, it was just a, you know it was a it was it was a machine you you had to run next to that machine or you would get run over by the machine yeah
1: <laughs> so what was uh, what was your first big match you remember in WWF? obviously you went against Hogan there was the Royal Rumble but what was your biggest match like when you first started it feels like you were thrown right into it
2: well I was and the thing about it was that uh, I didn't have a chance to remember anything. I was thrown yeah. into,
1: thrown <laughs> yeah. into it. Uh,
2: yeah. I, I started off taking the Warriors place, and that was again just uh, to me, even though it was a more successful wrestling company, it wasn't it wasn't professional run like WCW, where you knew you worked for a big company, a big corporate company. Working with the WWF, it was like working, you know, for a for a, for a carnival. Really? that you were know, say for instance you know where they they lived on their how they drew money how you made money as the people came to the house shows you didn't make any money for TVs and um so it was again it was it was a driven you had to work hard not that you did not have to work hard at wcw but you know you only got paid if, if they drew money you know so um it was just again so many more pressures you had to work on all your days off to promote the shows because if you didn't promote the shows there's a chance you they wouldn't be sold out. They weren't sold out. You didn't make top money, you know. Same yeah, instance, and it was really yeah, and so again, it was just um, that's um something I enjoyed about it too because I like working hard and you learn what the business is really like. There, The cool thing about it to me was I really got to separate myself from everybody in the business when I was there because if you don't draw money, you're not on top there, you know. And So yeah. I knew I was on top. I drew money. Uh, I knew I was safe on top. And so, again, it was, um, it was like working on, downside was like it was working on, working for a, for a small carnival.
1: Yeah. Now, there's always that story, like, uh, Stephanie the Body talks about it, like, when uh, Roddy Piper passed away. And he talks about, like, in the 80s, they worked like 68 days in a row or some ridiculous number. I'm sure you have stories like that on working. You're pretty much always on the move when you're not wrestling.
2: Well, that's just a normal schedule, you know, two months straight, yeah. something like that. But when people had days off, I didn't. And I wasn't the only one like that. There was a crew of people just on their days off working every day too, promoting the shows that were coming up. So yeah. that's the deal on top there. You earn your money. I mean, you're working on your days off. You're paying for your own expenses. Um, again, it was just, it was um, it was a tough way to make money, make a dollar. But um, it was satisfying also.
1: That's true. Now, did you always did you always get pops in the crowd like throughout your whole career? Because I watched a few matches and it was like the crowd loved you. It was you versus Austin, and the crowd was like, both of you came out to cheers, and that's that's pretty rare. Usually, it's like a, a big chunk versus another chunk, like a small pop versus big. But it seemed like both of you were loved by the crowd.
2: Yeah, I, I think I was, I had that my whole career where I think it, yeah. it only happened for Austin right after that pay-per-view with Jake Roberts. But, um, no, I, that started my first television tapings at WCW at Center Stage. Um, I acted as a heel, worked as a heel, but I always got cheered.
1: That was like so cool. Like, obviously you're working and just to hear that from the crowd, it must be like exhilarating.
2: No, it is. And it, that to me was the big payoff for me is, um, I wasn't a fan of wrestling, but I, I was a fan of the wrestling fan. And so yeah. when I saw that they enjoyed something and the, the, the company itself who you were working for couldn't program them, they liked or disliked you no matter what the, the company tried to do. It made you feel like you were doing something good. And I knew I was working for it in a different direction than other people worked for. And I, I looked at every facet I could find and I said, I'm going to use this and this and this and this to get myself over it, and then If I do all these things,
1: and a few of them work, it'll be hard to stop me. No, that's true. So is there, looking back on your career, I know you've been in so many matches, is there one that, like, stands out to you as, like, your favorite match?
2: Well, there's a bunch of them. I usually answer that with the one at Halloween Havoc me and Sting, where I didn't know the finish, and I was world champion for, like, three minutes. Because the reason that meant the most to me is because I didn't know the finish, and when I... I like being fooled and I think as people, we like to be scared sometimes as we become adults, it's hard to get scared because we know there's not such thing as monsters and stuff. So to be fooled or be a part of something no one knew about, that was fun to me. And then I guess, you know, winning the world, you know, the world title from Sean at Madison Square Garden would be right up there with that, with the same feeling.
1: Yeah. A buddy of mine, uh, that, that loves you, and I told him I was going to talk to you. He was 12 years old at that pay-per-view, and I rewatched that earlier today. And man, you thoroughly just—you looked so happy the way you were like high-fiving the crowd. You even hugged a guy that was like hanging over. That's just a win there, you know. Like that's for It has such great history. That was right. Such a and the crowd. Went, just think about it. This is so how much people loved you in your career, and this is why I enjoyed you so much growing up. You hit, uh, Jose, what was that? Uh, Lothario? Yeah. You hit him and you hit Sean and you win the match. you like using the camera. And the crowd pops as soon as you win. The crowd went absolutely ballistic. Right. <laughs> well,
2: too, that meant a lot to me, too, Doug, because everything I had been through at that point in my life and the rest of the yeah. business, I'd worked myself, which I've talked about, I won't go into. I'd been on the whipping post there because I'd left and had to come back on my knees a little bit and was, you know, on that whipping post. And to work myself off of there by myself, you know, um, and how I did it is going to be in the book as well. But uh, to me, I, that's why I think I know for far as my run in the business was totally different than everyone else's. One, because I was on top pretty much my whole career. And the other is how I did it. And I really did it my way. I didn't kiss anybody's ass. Um, I did things, you know. I I didn't push anybody around, but I didn't kiss anyone's ass. And
1: I did it all through hard work. Absolutely. I can't wait for the book. Any idea, like when? Is there a target date that you that you have that you want to get that out there? Well, no. I,
2: the guy helped me write his name Barry Norman, and uh, the guy helped me produce. Uh, Vicious Circle, Rob Bellamy. Uh-oh. They're going to be here the first weekend in November and we're going to all oh, go cool. through some things and ride around and see. The main thing about my book too is that because I wasn't a wrestling fan, I want to say how I got to wrestling and how I got to being from a child. And some of the yeah. things I did to, you know, as a, as even as a kid, I did things different because I just was, I outworked everyone. I had a different way of looking things. And, um, I think this, those kind of stories are going to explain who I am and, the type of family I came from, which I'm really proud of my family. And um, I think that's going to be a big part of the book as well.
1: Yeah. And I'll make sure a million times check out this C- circle podcast. I'll have the, the link to it in the notes of the episode. But here's one thing that's pretty fun. So you won Survivor Series 96. And then it, you guys have always come back to MSG a lot. Now it seems like it's not as much. Like, whenever I see, like, ads come up, like, go see WWF at the Garden or WWE, they call now. And I saw you. uh It was a Saturday matinee at the Garden. It was January of 97. And it was, like, I guess the lead-up to WrestleMania 13. I think that makes sense, right? Yeah. 97? And it was yeah. you and Taker. And it was the last National the night you guys were the main event. And Vader came out to attack Undertaker. And then it, I remember just the end of the show, me and my buddy Tom just going nuts because it was you and Taker, like, going back and forth just beating up Vader.
2: Right. You know, I don't yeah. remember that so much. I do remember yeah. you know, we do an afternoon sh- afternoon show once in a while at the Gardens, um, but I don't remember that particular match. I do remember working with Taker at a couple of those afternoon shows, though.
1: Yeah. that You know what's funny? Back in the day, just, you know, the only time, like, there were so many wrestling magazines, the internet wasn't big then, so it was very rare for titles to change when it wasn't on TV. And right. at that, and at that house, that house show, uh, savio Vega, like, turned on Ahmed Johnson and joined the Nation of Domination. But I always remember that cause when it happened, me and my buddy were like, oh my God, this, like, this, stuff like this never happened. But, uh, right. yeah, no, it was really cool because I, I talked to my buddy on the phone. I was like, we saw Sid live. I know we did. So I looked it up, and that, that was that. But uh, So, just a few more questions, and I thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah. Who was somebody, looking back on your career, when you knew, when you found out, like, hey, you're wrestling Undertaker, you're wrestling Shawn, that you knew that you guys could steal the show? Was there one wrestler that stands out to you? Well, there's
2: a bunch of them, but the one, and I have to say this, and we'll go into it, but the one that... It really helped me get off the whipping post too is when I worked with either Bigelow or Vader um, and Sean too but um, it's always nice to know I was working with Sean but especially Bigelow was this one thing about Bigelow was different than all of them I could take myself out of the position of worry about calling the match uh, Bigelow yeah. was maybe one of the best people at that so while Bigelow would be my number one person on that list would be because of that reason that we It really was a night off. All I had to do is participate and listen.
1: Yeah, he was a... He's, a, he's from New... Well, he was he was born in New Jersey. And he wow. won... He, he was a wrestler. He won the state championship in New Jersey. Well, I'm going to tell you something, man. He was one of those
2: guys that were... One of those people where he could work... It don't matter from, say, Georgia to New York, California to overseas. You know, where you... Going to that many different areas, you, you're dealing with different peoples geographically in different spots, and they react differently. <clears throat> he knew what to do every night, and I remember there was only one time that I can remember that, and what it was, it was a like a six man or eight man tag. It was a television match. I can't remember who was all in it, but it was the only time that I saw him come up short in a match where he didn't get the people, and it wasn't his fault. It was just it was a television taping wasn't many people there, and that they had been, you know, wr- you know, wrung out from all the matches. And it was just the six man or eight man is always a hard match to, you know, keep a tempo going. But I remember him taking the blame for it, saying, man, because Bill Watson was in the dressing room it was in WWF, and he said, man, I'll take the blame for this. I should have done this. And, um, But again, it would probably be Big Love who I enjoyed. I knew that we were going to have the best match of the night, and I knew I didn't have to. Much about it,
1: yeah. Him and it, it's crazy. You said those two guys because those guys are like bigger guys, like size-wise. Like you were tall, but in phenomenal shape. Those guys were in good shape too. You have to be to be a wrestler. But man, Vader was another guy that he, he moved around so well. And like you said, Bam Bam, how great was this? like just said he went he went against like NFL players like LC. Well, uh, ASM, that was. Crazy. Well, this
2: is he's the only one could have done that, Doug. Oh, that I, I The know. main event at WrestleMania with a football player in a, just a real one-on-one match, and yeah. uh, the the thing about that to me was so cool for him was the business was down like then worse than it's ever maybe not as bad as it is now, but it was really down. But for him to come through that, he really was carrying the flag for the WWF.
1: Yeah, now, I don't no, know if a lot right. of people
2: even realized that or not. No, you got to
1: yeah. think at that time. If you, I think you were talking about it. There was something I was, oh no, I watched you did it, you were doing the interview, you were talking about Bret Hart. And it's true, like, when he was on top of the business, it wasn't doing as well. That was when they had the whole gimmick with, uh, who could pick up Yokozuna. And it was like him and Lex Luger, or Lex Luger was the one that could pick up Yokozuna. I forgot how, it was a really weird storyline that they had back then, but, uh.
2: I I think I came in and cycled shit just right after that, if I'm not mistaken. It was, I deal... But yeah. the business was bad then, Doug. But it, it stayed bad for a couple of years after that. Was
1: it a lot different when you came back when your second when you when you came back the second time? I knew yeah, I'll tell, tell you what time. it was.
2: I was I was really shocked. I remember um, watching their TV a little bit and seeing um, Steve Dahl the team called Well Done. I said, "Man, yeah. this is something." I said, "I know these guys," and not that I'm being mean to them, but I know these guys aren't. Guys in the business are going to sell tickets. And, um, when I got to my first television ta- taping <clears throat> at Macon, Georgia, I was shocked to see like just a few hundred people there. Oh um, man. You know, Did you ever get
1: to rest- I'm sure there was wrestling events, right? Like how, I
2: don't know if they
1: ever had any big pay per views, but were you able to wrestle like close to home, like with WWF? Sometimes, not too often. Yeah. It must have been pretty cool. I'm sure some local people that you grew up with came out and saw you. Yeah,
2: I tell you what's strange when I was in WWF first time I Sid Justice and, um, I was at WrestleMania, the owner of the Continental Territory named David Woods, when I was Lord Humongous, I was at the hotel at in Indianapolis and I looked in the lobby then, David Woods was standing there I said, what are you doing here? He goes, I come to watch your match. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. Boss showed up man. to watch my main event. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's just so many different things I want to ask you, but I don't want to, I want to spoil it for all the stuff you're going to have on your podcast. But how about, how about this? So when you first come into WBF, we'll go back a little bit and you're going against Hulk Hogan. So uh, what was that like? Cause he was obviously asked to at the top. I know he was getting ready to leave at that time or retire, but what was that like? Like going against the guy that was kind of like, he was carrying the flag for so long and then obviously it was going down
2: at that point, but. Well this I was brought in for that very reason, Doug, to take him yeah. for this spot, you know. Um so that's why I said, you know, if I, I told Vince to well I wanted, I said I want Hogan's spot, you know, so I never felt bad about asking for that. Yeah. This the thing is, and he knows this and everyone knows this, you get in that position business and you know eventually, you know, the spot just runs out. Oh, Um, yeah, even the best can't have the run forever. No. And he had run his run. I think back in those days, the runs were a little shorter, you know. Uh, I don't know how long it was, but... And that's the reason, you know, like, when he was getting booed and stuff, it wasn't I was any better than him. It's just that he had run his course. You know, like, when we did that little rumble, the people booted him. And every time we were in the same building, they booted him. You know, so... It really amounted to that, you know. Like today, you know, just no one can stay on top forever.
1: Yeah, and I, I think people are over, you know, the gimmick of "real American, eat your vitamins," and they wanted something new, and that—that that was like the, the the tide definitely changed. Well, around that. I don't this
2: is what I was hearing. Doug, is that
1: you, know, you can't go out and say,
2: "Eat your vitamins and say your prayers" when. You know, the whole company's un- under investigation for steroids.
1: Oh, that's true, yeah. You know? Yeah.
2: So that makes a little sense, too, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Meaning this
2: is, is yeah. you don't force something, someone down someone's throat and say, you're going to believe this and only this, and this is why. Because then finally people go, no, this is why I'm not going to believe in it.
1: Yeah. Did you ever have a chance to work with or against Macho Man? Well, I mean, macho
2: when man? I came back into WCW, my last run there before I broke my leg was I got to be a part of Team Madness for just a little bit. Uh oh, um, that's awesome. This is a cool thing, I mean for me I said sorta of stupid so everybody's going to gosh sort of stupid Peter, <laughs> but this is one of the cool things about working was like Randy Savage. One, me and Savage is broke the business, sorta of, he broke in earlier than me, but we still had the same philosophy, the old style, the old ways of the business and things worked, and when you got the green light, you took it, you didn't let no, te- no one take advantage of you? Yeah. We're, we're working a match with Dean Malenko and Perry Saturday I think it was. This is when I was running up my total for wins. And, um, Dean comes to me and says, he goes, man, uh, you mind if I give you a drop toe hold? He goes, I do a really good drop toe hold. I said, no, Dean, we can't do that tonight. What we're going to do is this. When I come in the ring, <laughs> I want to grab you, powerbomb you, and pin you, and, and whoever the referee, she's just going to start handing up, you know, numbers. Then I'm gonna pin you again, and I'm gonna pin Perry, and I'm gonna pin Perry again, and I'm gonna pin you again, and just ran up a bunch of numbers, you know. You uh, know, we walked away from that. <laughs> Randy Savage, she goes, man, he goes, I like that. You know, you don't let someone tell you that you're going to do a drop toe hold, drop toe hold to you when you're getting ready to, you know, be the biggest monster in the world.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and it's like full circle, you know. You, like you mentioned, you started with Monster Man and then it was, that, that was the time, you what, 13, 14 years, 13 years later almost?
2: Right. So to me, it's a really cool thing to come full circle with him and then him tell me that, like, you know what, I sort I of grew up and figured this business out.
1: Yeah. I interviewed a Tiny Lister who was in WBF for, like, a short run. And He's an actor, mostly now, but uh, he told me a good story, because, I don't know, have you ever seen the movie Friday? I don't know. It was, like, with Ice Cube. And Anyway, no. I asked him ha- how he gets into his character, and he said he learned from Macho Man, the way Macho Man was just, like, turning up a notch. Right. Like, out of nowhere, like, was, you kind of did something like that with your promos. Like, when you used to cut your promos, you talk very, like, softly, but in an aggressive way, and then you just, like, kick it up. Well, that's what you do. Is you What you're yeah. trying to do
2: with your interview, um, Doug, is tell a story with it. It'd be 30 seconds, 15 seconds, or a minute, or a minute and a half. You know, so, you, can, you know, I think at the beginning I did all my loud and screaming, and then someone brought that to my attention, and I started changing things up.
1: No, they were great. And that, I think that's a different today because now it's now so scripted, you can almost tell that people are reading off the script. Alright, so this has been awesome. My last question for you, for Psycho's Vision: Why, what, how did you come to choose the Power box? Well,
2: I was, um getting ready to go to Continental as Lord Humongous. I was working out at this little place downtown Memphis with a guy named Motley. His name was David. And, um he had been to Japan and he said, man, you ought to use this thing called the Power Bomb. He showed it to me. When I went down to Continental, I was gonna use it, and they said, No, we want you to use the Cobra Clutch. Where Gilbert came in as the New Booker, and he didn't know what finish I was using. So, what I did, I used the Power Bomb on my own without telling anyone. And um, the guy on the front row said, Man, that guy's dead. And I knew right then I needed to use that finish.
1: Yeah, <laughs> And thank God that you did that you took that you took the you took the lead and did that because that is like they were definitely the ones that you did even when you came back in 2012 for I don't know maybe it was like raw 20th anniversary right and you powerbombed. uh I'm trying to think of what guy you powerbond even later. then yeah and even then I'm like gee man, this guy's still putting it into it right I appreciate it man I appreciate it and I'm gonna make sure everybody goes to check it out. I have so many buddies that we love watching you growing up, so they're gonna go listen to your story. And again, thank you. And I I I love the way you're doing that podcast because it makes you want to just tune in next week. Why? There's so much to you that you don't know. You only know the guy you see on TV for you know 15, 20 minutes each episode. But this, like, knowing the way you grew up and the hardships that you went through and like where you went, and uh, you were on the top of the world. You know, watching your reaction at Survivor Series is one of the coolest things.
2: I think so too, Doug. I appreciate it. As we get closer to this book and do different things, we'll come back on yours sometime.
0: Man, how awesome was he? Such amazing stories that he, you know, told me. You know, for 60 minutes, I felt like I was his buddy, and uh, it's really cool. I think he really came across that way in the industry, and uh, that's why fans loved him. As a bad guy, people just went nuts when he won. And I referenced to him, and I'll reference to you guys again, that moment when he won at Madison Square Garden against Shawn Michaels at Survivor Series. Man, that crowd just, man, they were just going nuts for him. The end, if you want to watch it again, you can find it online. People are just hugging him, and he is just, you could tell, it was a big moment for him. So, yeah, check out his podcast, The Vicious Circle. You can find it everywhere, but I'll have the link to the website where the podcast plays. Don't forget to review, rate, and share our podcast. And then this Thursday, we're interviewing bad boy Mike Barnes, Sean Kanan, who was the nemesis of Ralph Macchio in Karate Kid 3. Good night.